because I have a dream. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother David as summer vacation continues into August. How are you doing, David? I'm feeling pretty good right now. Summer vacation, it's always nice to be off. It's hot, it's sunny, it's a good time of year, but David, it's always a good time of year for a history podcast. So if you're just joining us for the first time, how this works is David is really my brother, and every episode I ask him, oh brother, when art thou? Neil, it's March 4th, 1966, and things are heated in the House of Commons. The opposition, led by former Prime Minister John Diefenbaker, are accusing the Justice Minister, Lucien Cardin, of being soft during a recent case of Soviet espionage activity. Mr. Cardin shoots back, telling Diefenbaker, You, sir, are the last person in this house to give advice on the handling of security cases in Canada. I want the right honorable gentleman to tell the house about his participation in the Monseigneur case when he was prime minister of this country. It's a dramatic moment in a mostly dry and technical debate in front of a packed press gallery, leaving them, and soon the country, with a question. Who is Monseigneur? All right, that's a good question, David. I'm wondering it myself. So I can gather from John Diefenbaker that we're talking about the Canadian House of Commons. So we have a Canadian story here that involves some sort of espionage, something going on. How are we going to dig into this, David? What are we going to find out about John Diefenbaker's involvement in the Monseigneur case? So at first, the press, the country, and therefore, I guess us, we were all baffled by Monseigneur. So he just dropped this reference to this out of the blue and no one knew what it was? The reference he was making was actually to top secret files. No one outside of the very highest ranks of the government had any idea what this Monseigneur case was, what it was about, what had happened, why John Diefenbaker wouldn't want to talk about it in the middle of parliament. So people were fascinated and they started investigating. The press, of course, was digging and the name didn't help. Everybody assumed it was a Quebec case. Monseigneur, that sounds French in Canada. That leads people to think Quebec, but nothing scandalous in the past at Diefenbaker administration relating to someone of that name could be found. So people were confused and turning, unsurprisingly, to Cardin and demanding that he explain what had happened, which created a crisis in the liberal cabinet of Lester B. Pearson, who in 1966 was the prime minister, because he initially gave orders that Cardin not explain about this top secret case. But when Cardin, feeling that now that he'd started things, He was coming under too much pressure from the press to keep quiet now, 
demanded the right to speak on threat of resignation, Pearson changed his mind, and Cardet had a dramatic press conference. So the prime minister is going to let one of his highest-ranking ministers speak openly about a top-secret file. Exactly. I can imagine, David, that would be some headline news. So, yes, absolutely. Press conference, once again, packed attendance. This is big. All the press gallery in Ottawa is there looking to get the story. And what a story. Because Cardin first clarifies that although people had initially misunderstood because of his own accent, he himself was francophone and from Quebec, and imagined that this was a case about a francophone person, what he had been saying wasn't Monseigneur, it was Munzinger, a German name. And Minister Cardin said that one Olga Munzinger, who had since died in the interim between the Diefenbaker administration and this press conference, had been a KGB spy who had been sleeping with at least two of Diefenbaker's cabinet ministers. That is about as dramatic as it gets for political scandals. You have a Russian spy, you have sex. This is as juicy as it can get. I imagine it was on the front page of every paper the next day, David. It certainly got some coverage, but it was also, this was the high point of newspapers in Canada. And people started digging because his press conference hadn't really seemed conclusive enough. And one of the people who started digging was Robert Reguli, the star reporter at the Toronto Star. The star at the star. That's a pretty good nickname. He first determined that Olga Munsinger was not the correct name. Mr. Cardin had apparently not consulted the files he had access to very deeply. But by tracking down who had lived in Ottawa at the time, cross-referencing against some of Cardin's statements, he was able to determine that Gerda Munsinger had been deported from Canada to West Germany in 1960, which matched up well. But there was an interesting twist to that realization, because Gerda Munsinger had not died before Mr. Carday's press conference. In fact, she was very much alive and living in Munich. So Mr. Reguli hopped on a plane and went to get an interview with a suddenly alleged by the Justice Minister of Canada to be a KGB spy German housewife. Well, David, that is another great twist in this story, as now the spy is alive and she can tell her side of the story. What did she have to say? So the first thing that Gerda Munzinger had to say was that she hated communism. She had fled from East Germany to the West because the Red Army's invasion of Germany at the end of World War II had destroyed her life, 
Most of her family had died in the uh, occupation. She claimed that she had been raped by a Red Army soldier. And then she'd fled to West Germany and looked to make a better life by emigrating out of Germany to North America, which looked at the time in the late 1940s like the land of freedom and opportunity. And eventually, after multiple efforts, she managed to emigrate to Canada, and she was living there and working at a nightclub when she happened, by pure coincidence, not working as any kind of a spy for the KGB, to meet one Mr. Pierre Sevigny, a wounded war veteran who was also, as it happened, the associate defense minister in John Diefenbaker's cabinet. And she admitted they had a brief affair, which ended, and then eventually she'd been deported by mysterious and unexplained to her decision by the Canadian government, shipped to West Germany, where she had never lived before, and had been forced to rebuild her life, never knowing that all the time the Canadian government had believed that she was a KGB spy. Well, David, on the one hand, it's quite the story just as it is. On the other hand, isn't that exactly what a spy would want you to believe? It's quite the story, I have to agree. But yes, the RCMP clearly had a different point of view. Mr. Cardin had not been briefed the way that he had been briefed because the RCMP was not suspicious of the past history of Miss Munsinger. But the RCMP's story about what happened, going all the way back to before the Second World War, was considerably different in detail, although remarkably similar in broad outline, to the one that Miss Munsinger had told to Mr. Reguli. So what did the RCMP, the Canadian National Police Force, believe, David? So the RCMP's information was taken mostly, for her early life, was taken mostly from files assembled by the CIA from American Army intelligence sources. They claimed that well before the Second World War, Miss Munsinger, at the time Miss Gerda Hesler's father, had been a Communist Party member active in Germany, supporting the Communist movement, that when the Second World War occurred and the Soviets occupied Miss Munsinger's hometown, most of her family had, in point of fact, died, but not because they had been fighting the Communists, simply because as civilians they'd been caught in the crossfire. And then... Miss Munsinger, now in, remember, occupied East Germany shortly before the Berlin Wall was created, one of the most tightly controlled societies on earth, started getting an unusual privilege. She was traveling back and forth between East and West Germany on a regular basis, something usually only commercial travelers could do. And when the American army, occupying West Germany at the time, looked into it, they concluded that she was living and working with a KGB 
agent handler who was sending East German operatives into West Germany to gain intelligence on the Allied activities there. So on that basis, she was blocked from her continuing entry into West Germany. But instead of simply giving up, she started applying to emigrate to the United States, which was, of course, denied because she was a suspected spy. Then she briefly managed to marry an American serviceman, one Mr. Munsinger, who was stationed in West Germany and attempted to use her marriage to an American citizen to gain permission to immigrate to the United States, but was again denied, but then realized that she could apply to emigrate to Canada and the security checks done at the time by Border and Immigration Services of Canada were done under her new married name rather than her old maiden name and didn't turn up the fact that she was a suspected spy because she wasn't a suspected spy under the name Gerda Munsinger, which is how she managed to immigrate to Canada, become a hostess at a nightclub. The RCMP assessed with a very high confidence that she was working as a prostitute after hours and that there was no other explanation for how she was living where she was living on her income at the nightclub. And then she somehow got an introduction to Mr. Sevigny, the associate defense minister, who, as the RCMP noted, would be a prime target for an intelligence collection operation. And then, according to the RCMP, she used that connection to attempt to gain more social connections with other members of Diefenbaker's cabinet. In particular, one George Harris Hees, also a young MP, former war hero in the Second World War, injured in action, who was Minister of Trade and Commerce at the time, another high-profile cabinet position of interest to Russian intelligence. The RCMP believed and stated that they believed that she had slept with both Mr. Hees and Mr. Sevigny. And at this point, she applied for Canadian citizenship. That's verifiable by documentary record, of course. Both Mr. Sevigny and Mr. Hees signed her application for citizenship, and usually you would think having two cabinet ministers sign your paperwork would be a good thing, but in this case, it raised red flags, which led to a deeper investigation, which led to their realizing that she should never have been admitted to the country in the first place due to the suspicion of her under her maiden name, and this was all reported up to the justice minister of the time, who reported it to Mr. Diefenbaker, who decided that the best thing for the country was to privately reprimand the two cabinet ministers who had allegedly behaved improperly and simply deport 
Miss Munsinger with all possible haste, which is what was done. Wow, David, this is quite the story from the RCMP. So we have these two competing stories, Miss Munsinger's and the RCMP's. Was she or was she not a spy? What was the reaction to all of this in Canada, David, as the public starts to find out that ministers were sleeping with, at best, a nightclub waitress, at worst, a Russian spy, that the prime minister covered this up? So there's another not-so-minor element to this story, which was widely discussed at the time. Now, Miss Munsinger was deported in 1960, but the revelation to the public that she had existed occurred in 1966. In between those two dates, in Britain, there was the Profumo Affair, when a British cabinet minister was revealed to have been sleeping with a young party girl by the name of Christine Keeler, who was also sleeping with the Soviet naval attaché. And this had been such a scandal in Britain at the time that Mr. Profumo had had to resign his cabinet post. And the Munsinger story was big enough to make it briefly onto the international news and it repeatedly received unfavorable comment suggesting that Canadian standards were lower than British standards because these two scandals, which in some ways were very similar, clearly the British reaction, not just the cabinet minister resigning publicly, but there was also a criminal trial of one of Miss Keeler's will be generous and say friends who was also suspected to be associated with the whole thing. He eventually committed suicide, actually. But it was viewed as having received a much more serious reaction and response in Britain than this affair had for six years in Canada. And this led to criticism not merely of the conservatives, of Diefenbaker's government for choosing to not publicize the incident, but also of Lester B. Pearson's liberals who had come into power in 1963, learned that all of this had happened, and then not done anything with it until in 1966 on a unrelated Soviet espionage scandal decided to drop the entire thing and reveal it to the public to try and cover up their own misdeeds, which really created a broad-based perception in the country that Canadian governments of all political stripes simply weren't taking these issues very seriously. At least relative to how the British treated it. So, David, you can't really bring down the Diefenbaker government. They're already out of power. Of course, there's some issue with the Pearson government because they're now in power and hadn't revealed it, but at least they weren't the ones involved in the Russian spying scandal. What's going to be the fallout from this? Well, there is a lot of fallout, small and large. So let's start with a few small points. 
Lester B. Pearson chose, in the grand old Canadian tradition of dealing with political scandals, to appoint a royal commission headed by a Supreme Court justice to investigate the scandal and report whether any improprieties or criminal activity had occurred. The result was the Spence Report, it criticized the Diefenbaker government's handling of the case, but also noted that there was insufficient evidence to prove that Miss Munsinger had been a spy and determined that ultimately deportation was the best option available and therefore no major retroactive changes should be made, simply some suggestions that Canadian governments be more public about scandals going forward. Whether any government actually followed any of those is a different question. Governments not being known for being particularly open about their own scandals, usually. It's unusual, but while this royal commission was going on, as you would expect, it remained a live and much debated issue in the House of Commons and the media, the entire scandal, including the Liberals' handling of the George Spencer case, which had been the spy scandal which had led to the altercation between Diefenbaker and Cardin, which led to our story. This wasn't necessarily gripping to everyone, I suppose. At least one person didn't like it. We can say that with confidence, because on... May 18th, 1966, while the visitors' gallery of the House of Parliament was packed with a school group, there was a sudden sound of an explosion audible in Parliament, which led naturally to an adjournment of the session and an investigation. It turned out that one man had attempted to smuggle a bomb into the House of Parliament, had done so successfully, and had been attempting to set a timer on it in the House of Parliament bathroom when he made an error and blew himself up. After investigation, it was determined that his name was Paul-Joseph Chartier, originally from Alberta, no fixed address or employment, and the note that he carried with him into the House of Parliament that fateful day stated that he planned to overthrow the Canadian government and take charge of the country because he needed to teach MPs not to be so obsessed with, quote, poppy talk on sex and fraud, end quote, instead of the real issues as he saw them. Well, luckily he was not a very good bomber. Very luckily. Needless to say, that distracted some attention from the main scandal briefly, but ultimately it wasn't enough to really keep the house or the country focused on other things. And Prime Minister Pearson determined to change his previously determined stance against raising a particular controversial issue in the House, and instead to deliberately bring it up partially as a diversion so that there would be something else going on. 
That was one of the first debates in Canada proposing the abolition of the death penalty, which would ultimately occur a decade later. So this scandal, in a small way, affected Canadian law in a very big way. And one more, much more minor, effect that this scandal had on Canadian media, the then-popular CBC show This Hour Has Seven Days, which mixed straight news reporting and satire, was cancelled, and the CBC management claimed that it was unrelated to their coverage of the scandal, but This Hour Has Seven Days had been very critical of both the government and of the opposition throughout the entire scandal, including a dramatic fistfight with Pierre Sevigny, which occurred on camera between the host and Mr. Sevigny, and many of the journalists who worked on that program were convinced that the reason for their cancellation was the political unpopularity of the aggressiveness of their reporting. And this actually helped to encourage its long-running effects on Canadian media. The CBC has a show still patterned after it. This hour has 22 minutes because many journalists believed that they were in the right and that the show was effective at speaking truth to power. What of Miss Munsinger, David? Did she live out her days in West Germany, presumably? And was it ever determined whether or not she was actually involved in spying for the KGB? Miss Munsinger lived out her days in Munich. She got married again and became Gerda Merkt and was a housewife in Germany. She interviewed with Canadian media on several occasions before her death in 1998. Most modern experts do not believe that she was a KGB spy, but no conclusive proof either way has ever come forward. So if she was a spy, she was very effective at it. Presumably. The best spies are the ones who don't get caught. Well, the one last thing I'll mention is that pretty much everyone involved in the scandal, except for Mr. Sevigny, who I should mention denied until the day he died that he had ever had a sexual affair with Miss Munsinger. Uh, But pretty much everyone else involved went on to have a long career in Canadian politics. Of course, Mr. Diefenbaker and Mr. Pearson are extremely well known for their long careers. George Harris Hees was a long-serving conservative MP for Northumberland County. He actually became a minister again in the cabinet of Brian Mulroney, Minister of Veterans Affairs, in 1984. Hopefully he didn't sleep with any Russian spies this time. He would have been getting up in age, no longer the handsome ex-Toronto Argonauts player that he had been when he first met Miss Munsinger, although I suppose he remained an ex-Toronto Argos player until the day he died, but one would hope that the Russians didn't honeypot him twice. Well, David, what an interesting story. A sex scandal involving a Russian spy in the highest levels of the Canadian government and all covered up and all debated, all contested right to the very end. Thanks for telling us. Always happy to share the fascinating events of the past and be sure to reach out let us know what you thought of this story on social media at when art thou 
Our website is obrother.ca, and you can find us on email, obrotherwhenartthou at outlook.com. David, we always like to wrap up with a fun quiz at the end of the show, so I do have a quiz for you today. Are you ready to play? I'm always ready, Neil. What do you got? All right, well, I've noticed that sometimes ordinary, everyday things that we use all the time have names that are related to people from history. So today's quiz, I'm going to get you to try and figure out some of these names that are both ordinary things and a person from history. All right, go for it. For example, if I referenced an American Revolutionary War General or a game of rock, paper, scissors, so your challenge, David, is to come up with the word that matches both of those things. I'm not seeing the connection. What we're looking for is Rochambeau. Rochambeau, I should have known. It's a strange one. There's actually no evidence of a direct connection between the general and the game of rock, paper, scissors. The game didn't even come to America until the 1930s from Japan, where it's called John Ken Pon. So Rochambeau might just be an Americanization of the Japanese name. Not quite sure on that one. All right, David, how about this? A French finance minister or a very simple portrait? A French finance minister or a very simple portrait. Oh, that's another tricky one. It wouldn't be a silhouette, would it? You got it, David. Etienne de Silhouette was a French finance minister, very strict, made drastic cuts. So his name became used to describe anything that was cheaply made. And soon it became synonymous with the simple portraits that we call silhouettes today. Our next one, David, a Texas politician or a cow with no branding on it. Well, I would call a cow with no branding on it a maverick. You've got it, David, named after Samuel Maverick, who was a lawyer, land baron, and a politician in Texas. And he said he didn't want to hurt his cows by branding them. So it's interesting today that most people don't even realize that a maverick is a term for a cow. Most of us associate it more with a certain Top Gun pilot. All right, David, next question. A land agent in Ireland or a protest? A land agent in Ireland or a protest? Tricky one. I don't know many Irish land agents, but I do believe that Lynch is an Irish name. Good guess, David. This is actually Charles Boycott. Boycott is what we're looking for. He was an unpopular estate agent in Ireland in the 1880s. He refused to lower the rates of rent and continued to carry out evictions. So they responded with a nonviolent protest of social ostracization, and the tactic came to be known as the boycott. Last question for you, David. A French acrobat or a pair of stretchy pants? A French acrobat or a pair of stretchy pants. Did I hear that correctly? Yes, you did hear that correctly. I am not an expert in either of those things. I suspect that there are not many people who are experts in both of those things. <laughs> it makes it tricky. I'm trying to think of any stretchy pants with unusual names. It wouldn't simply be elastic, would it? Good guess, David, but I was looking for leotard. Jules Leotard invented the Aerial Trapeze Act in 1859 and also invented a tight-fitting one-piece knitted garment to wear on the trapeze 
that would eliminate the hazard of loose clothing getting tangled up. Ah. Good work, David. Thanks for playing along. I always enjoy it, Neil. And one other one we could mention, David, is a British general and a sweater. The seventh Earl of Cardigan came up with the sweater style that we refer to as a cardigan in the Crimean War. And we talked about that a lot in episode 36, The Battle and the Poem. So if you're interested in that story or you're just a fan of the new Taylor Swift song, Cardigan, you may want to go back and listen to The Battle and the Poem. Thanks for listening. <laughs>